audio sermons from Peachtree Christian Church. A reading from the book of Acts, chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland regions and came to Ephesus, where he found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you became believers? They replied, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Then he said, Into what then were you baptized? They answered, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who has come after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Altogether, there were about 12 of them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, thank you for that reading, you two. She's pregnant. My friends, I am super excited to be here with you in worship on this new year, on this holy day of Epiphany. For those of you who are streaming with us online, I wish you could be here, but it's a delight to be uh, trying to be of one mind about Holy Scripture and the Holy Spirit today with you all. It's certainly a joy. Uh, today is Epiphany Sunday, and again, if you missed my mangled announcement at the top of the service, this is this moment in the church calendar where the Christ child's been born, and we're excited about that, but it's the aha, it's the stamping of people's witness, the wider witness, the Gentile world's witness in some cases, like when the Magi are there with Jesus, that he is coming on behalf of God to do a new thing in the world because of what God has called the kingdom. And so we're here to celebrate that big aha. And my prayer, again, is that through the reading and the singing and the prayers together and the giving and through the proclamation of the word, we all have something of an aha moment in our spirits where the Holy Spirit starts breathing life in us in this moment together because we live life by the Spirit of God. Amen? Now, I'm going to invite you to pray with me. Now, I, I get it. We all come in here in states of transition. Some of you are joyous. And some of you may be battling grief. Some of you may feel nothing. We have feelings aplenty. I'm not asking you to come with any real feeling at all except for who you are, where you're at in your narrative right now. Come as you are. But I am asking you to help clear your mind and your heart to make space for God to speak. So if you would join me in that endeavor by closing your eyes and just taking a few cleansing breaths, and let us make room. Breathe in deeply. Exhale the air. Feel it cleanse as you leave. Breathe in through your nose. Now try to empty every bit of air from your lungs. Breathe in the breath of God. God, we have gathered together as a people, as a community, to have a divine appointment with you. We ask that your glory fall into our imaginations and in our hearts, that you open our eyes to see you manifesting yourself and your divinity all throughout creation, that everywhere that existence is and life is, you have made it so. God, we are awash with grace this morning. It is everywhere for us to see and behold, for everything is a divine donation. And God, help us to live into that glory, into that excitement, into that joy. 
God, whether anyone else knows it or not, you and I know that without you, I can do nothing, so we ask that your Holy Spirit be present here at these prepared words, that they would actually be your words, and that you would translate into our hearts your message for today. It's in your Son's holy and matchless name we pray, and God's people say, Amen. I am sure that you will agree with me that what you bathe in makes all the difference. What you bathe in makes all the difference. At least in terms of how clean you'll be. My very first ministry was 24 years ago this year. 24 years ago I started this kind of work. My first ministry appointment was in a very small rural part of Indiana. In fact, from where I lived in Illinois, you went on the interstate, you went through Champaign-Urbana, which is where U of I is, and then you went through Danville, which is where the Van Dyke brothers came from, and then you crossed what we call through the Dirty D. That's what we call Danville, where I'm from. You crossed through the Dirty D and right over into Indiana, which was weird because parts of the counties were in eastern time zone and parts were in central time zone. So Indiana was always this kind of strange place if you're from Illinois. I was going in and out at different times, and it felt like I was going in back in time sometimes, depending on where I was. And the church I went to, it seemed like I was going way back in time because it was in this community. I mean, when you pulled up on the interstate, you saw the, the town that it had a name for to the left. It was a very small town. They had one pizza place. I mean, one pizza, one place to get a pizza in the whole town. And, and it was right there on the interstate. And when you went inside, you could have picked up a pizza. You could have gotten a tanning session and a tanning bed. You could have bought a couple troll dolls and pump up your gas. It was one of those kinds of places, if you've ever seen them. Pizza wasn't too bad. Or maybe I just got used to that being the only pizza in town. Well, you saw that town, and then you took a right, and you went away from the big city, <laughs> and you drove way out into the sticks. It must have been 10 miles off the interstate through cornfields and soybean fields, and then it went right into the thick part of the woods. In fact, they just meandered through beautiful woods until one moment you appeared upon three or four houses in the woods. Now, this would not be called a subdivision. It wouldn't be called a neighborhood. It was like three houses accidentally were dropped in the midst of woods, and then there was a church. Behind the church, there was this body of water. We call it, where I come from, a creek, because it has two E's, but they called it a crick. And there was nothing to do except for get ticks as you walked through the woods and played in the crick. And I don't think you got clean from washing in the creek. The water you bathe in matters. Now, it was such an outlandish kind of place for me. It was so far away, so in the country from where I'm from that they had to find a source for water. City water didn't run there. City electricity didn't run there. It was, it was a, a strange place to have a church. They, they chose these methods that are age-old methods. Depending on where you're from and when you're from, you might have called this method one name or another, but this community called it witching. Anybody ever done some witching? You take a wire coat hanger, you undo it, and you make it like an L-shape, and then you hold them like two joysticks, and you walked around the property, and through some magic or pseudoscience, I don't think we really know, these coat hangers would cross, and if they crossed without you doing it, that might indicate that there was water below your feet. That was literally how we found water for the well for the church, and the parsonage that I got to live on was on that same property. What I didn't know when I took the position was that the water was filled with sulfur. Yeah, 
I remember waking up the first morning I was going to go to the office. I, to get ready, took a shower like you do. And I remember standing in the shower and the water came on and the smell of it was so bad that I stood outside the water lathering my hair and only when I needed to rinse my hair did I hold my breath under the water. At the end of the summer, all my white t-shirts that I wore as undershirts were almost tinged orange from the sulfur. It took me only two days of showering in this water to make me sense that no matter where I went, I couldn't get the rotten egg smell off my skin. What you bathe in matters. Why am I talking about that? Well, this morning's reading is from the book of Acts, and there is Paul, his traveling through the, the known world at the time, talking to communities of Christians, talking to churches. And he comes across a group of disciples of Christ, followers of Jesus, who came to know Jesus Christ through the preachings of a man named Apollos. And he tells them, do you have the Holy Spirit? And it's really, I mean, sometimes the book of Acts is hilarious in terms of dialogue because it's so common and so ordinary, yet it's Holy Scripture. So it's like, uh, Holy Spirit? We didn't even know there was such a thing as the Holy Spirit. What's that? It's kind of a, like, Holy Spirit? I, I don't know. It sounds good. I want one. Like, they have no idea what Paul's talking about. And then he goes, well, what baptism were you baptized into? You see, in the ancient world, baptism was not an uncommon ritual or practice, and it was very much akin to bathing. When you went into the waters of baptism, you might have been divesting yourself of bad traits, bad habits, bad lifestyle, idolatry, who knows what. Whatever you were committing to, this was a cleansing sort of rite. It's often been considered a rite of, uh, in, you know, of, uh, of coming into a new community, an initiation rite. You go from one kind of life to another kind of life, and it comes from with a washing away of what was wrong. And so they said, what sort of baptism did you go through? And they said, we went through the baptism of John. Now, some of you might remember John the Baptist. This is Jesus' cousin. He, he wore camel's clothes or camel's hair as his clothes, and he had a wild, like, belt. And he, I mean, he was a wild man. He was a wilderness man, and, and he ate wild honey and locusts. And he went to the fringes of society, out into the hinterlands of community, away from the city, away from the main line, away from the establishment. And from out there, he cried out about how decadent society had become and how wayward and how wrong and how backwards people were living. They were living lives of, of egomaniac or ego-driven lives. The self reigned supreme, not God. And so he called them out and said, we need to repent. God's new thing is coming. God's new kingdom is coming. We need to turn around. That's repent. We need to turn around. You need to go into a whole new direction of life. As my friend Jimmy, who used to move furniture, the furniture store I worked at, would say to me, you got to get your minds right. John the Baptist is telling people to get in the waters and change. You got to get your mind right. And if you remember further... This was the same moment, the same event, the same movement in Israel that Jesus himself partnered into. Jesus went to those same waters, and under John's ministry, Jesus himself was baptized. And so Paul wants to know, were you baptized by who? And they said, well, we were baptized in the baptism of John. But Paul tells them, it's not quite good enough. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, why not? If it was good enough for Jesus, shouldn't it be good enough for me? 
That's when Paul says, no, there's another baptism. It's being baptized into the baptism of Jesus. And what comes with being baptized into Jesus is new life in the Spirit. And there he lists miraculous things like the speaking of tongues, where I would speak in my language and you of another language would hear in your own language. Miraculous gospel spread, this stuff was. And there was prophecy. That would be that, that someone was chosen to speak the truth of God in the world, often calling out the government, often coming out, calling out the establishment, right? These things were happening because of the Spirit, but they didn't know about it, which tells us that in the early church there was a diversity of experience. They didn't have ironed out their understanding of of the Holy Spirit at all, and so Paul is teaching them about this new life from the Spirit. But it's not through the baptism of John, it's the baptism of Jesus. The water you bathe in matters. And so William Jennings, this this great, this great theologian once said to, about this very passage, that the baptism of John, it, it is a movement for Israel. This is the difference between it and Jesus' baptism. It's the movement for Israel. Even Paul and even Jesus would accept this movement. And it was a movement of, I would say, preparation for something greater. It was a movement based in intentionality. When you got into those waters, you had an intention to do something different and unique with your life, to, to go on a right new path. I think most everyone knows by now that on October the 22nd, I received a liver transplant, and my life has been dominated by um, liver disease, liver failure, transplant for about a year and a half now. After I had my initial diagnosis and after I climbed out of the weakness and the pain that I had for so long, I really got myself into a relatively healthy place. The doctors would say, you're really healthy, except for the liver. The liver's not really that great. And, but, but I made those numbers get better and better and better until the beginning of summertime when I went to my liver specialist and she said, I think you should do everything you can to get on a transplant list. Now, I was not excited to hear that because for me, and whether or not this is a, a thing I should have thought or shouldn't have thought, it doesn't matter. This is how I thought. For me, hearing transplant meant failure. It meant that I didn't do enough to heal myself. It didn't matter that the doctor said these words to me, and this is not a very cuddly doctor. This is a doctor who shoots straight with you and sometimes tells it to you the way you don't want to hear it. She said to me, you have come heroically further than we thought you would come on your own. I love being called a hero. I don't know about you. But when she said that, let me tell you, I didn't feel so good because it meant I didn't do enough. And now I was staring at transplant, and to me that was a bogeyman, that was a monster, that was, I didn't know what that was, and I heard bad stories. And so I was afraid. I didn't act afraid, I acted like I was sincerely listening, but I couldn't wait for her to leave so I could cry, and I did. Her reasoning was sound. She said, look, jump through all the hoops. There's a lot of hoops to jump through. And and if you find out at the end of the day, you just desperately need a transplant, you will have all the criterion met and you'll be ready to go. It's better for you. It's smarter. And, And if at the end of the day, somehow, miraculously, the numbers begin to improve again, then you don't have to get a transplant and you'll, you'll be no worse for all the work. And so I said, okay, that's what I'll do. I got in the car. And then I drove the 20 minute, usually typically a 20 minute drive here to the church. But this was during rush hour traffic. It was Monday night. We had an executive committee meeting. So it took me an hour. 
And I have to tell you, in that hour drive, I went through all the stages of grief, all of them, very quickly. I was angry. How could my liver be this bad? You know, I didn't live that wild. Do you know how many people live way worse than I've ever lived and they have nothing wrong with the liver? Are you kidding me? This is not fair. I went from that. I went from that to bargaining. Maybe I'll just take a lot of milk thistle. (laughs) Maybe I'll just drink a lot of lemon water. By the way, this stuff doesn't help. We're way past any of that. I go through all of it and I'm crying. And by the time I get to church with one stop, it was my favorite taco joint here in Midtown. And I went there, and there was a man on the EC, our executive committee, who was there as a friend of mine. And I mentioned, well, I think I have to get on the transplant list. And this friend, who's not really gentle, he said, well, that's great news. You're either going to live or die, so now you can get on with your life. Gallows humor. But here's the thing. He knows me well, so I laughed hysterically at the gallows humor, and it was what I needed And by the time I stepped into the executive committee meeting, I had made my peace with all of it. Now, later, I've told that story, and uh, even my therapist had said to me, well, that's processing things very quickly. And I said, well, I'm no superhero. Um, I've had a year and a half of processing. This was able to happen quickly of accepting because I've been doing the work. But nevertheless, that's how I think of John's baptism. See, John's baptism is about intention. From that moment on, my intention was to do all the things I had to do to prepare myself for something greater. I was going to do everything the doctor said. I was going to do every test, and I was going to get on the list. And that was where my heart was pointed. That's what Jennings tells us John's baptism is like. But Jesus' baptism is different because it's not just about our intention, and it's not just a movement for the Israelite people. It is a movement of change in the whole world. It actually is a movement that accepts everybody, and it changes things at a structural level. You see, when you enter into the baptism of Jesus, the distinction is not just what do you intend to do with the future of your life in terms of morality or direction or who's in charge. It's not just an exchange of, of the ego centric life for a, a holy or a ethical centric life. It is actually an exchange of authority over our inner self. What it says is this, you enter the waters of baptism and into Christ's death you go. So as you stand in the waters of baptism, you're saying no to yourself, no to the ego. You're saying no to me. I will not be in charge of my own life anymore. And like Christ, I will die and be buried. And when I come out of the watery grave of baptism, like Christ with his glorified body, I will have a newness of life about me. I'm handing myself over to God as the director of my life. And in that, in that baptism, into the baptism of Jesus Christ comes a gift of friendship, a gift of counseling, a gift of of, of a tutor who walks with us through this life. And that gift is called the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit is present in our lives, when we die to ourselves and we accept the life from God and have that Holy Spirit power inside of us, we become free. We become free to no longer be dominated by ego-driven issues. And your ego is a monster. It tells you that other people's success is not that important, but only yours is. It tells you that love is too risky. You have to put up guards. You have to put up guards. No matter how many romance novels you've read and love movies you've watched, love is so risky that you have to hedge your bets. 
It tells you that, that you need to store up what's yours in case everything goes sideways in this country or in this world or in the economy or with your own work or if AI takeovers your job, you have to have storehouses of money, storehouses of gold, like that matters, storehouses of food. You have to have bullets and ammunition. You got to have it all. Store up for yourselves because everyone else is a threat to you. That's what the ego life says. The ego life says you have only value if you have success defined by who? By you. But when you die to yourself and you accept newness of life from God in the Spirit, your value is not based on what you think of yourself or what others think of you. It's based on what God says about you. And you become free. You become free to love. You become free to risk loving because love is dangerous business. It's risky to love. You become free to give things away. You become free to celebrate the success of another person to be happy for other people. You become free because you don't have to have everything for yourself. That is the difference this makes. You become free to accept people you don't understand simply because you don't understand. And you know that the world is big enough. And you know that God's heart is big enough to include people that even you don't like. Whew. On October the 22nd, the hospital called and said, we have a liver. Would you like to come in and receive this liver? And I did, and I woke up from that surgery knowing that everything now had changed. The way I thought about my health was no longer the same. Now I'm going to be on certain medication the rest of my life, and it's important I take it at the same time every day. Like my wife tells me every day, twice a day, take your pills. I've already taken them usually, but we have backups in place so I don't mess that up. I have to go to the, the doctor at least once a week for blood work, and... For a while, I'll do that. But, you know, I never liked the doctor before. I was scared of the doctor. The doctors made me feel bad, right? They said scary things sometimes. Now these doctors are like my best friends. We make jokes with each other. We're close now. But it's not just that. It's the way I have to think about my life and my habits and my diet and everything else. You see, things have changed because of the surgery. But more than just my habits... I will tell you this, because I've told you, I've always been honest with you about who I am. I am somebody who struggles with anxiety. I am somebody who hasn't always done well with worry and stress. I've preached about it because I think many of you are there, and I want you to know the truth. But the thing is this, worry and anxiety and struggle dominate our lives like monsters. And even though I knew between my ears that these were things that didn't necessarily make my life better or that the small things in life are small things, don't worry about them. Even though I knew it here, I had a hard time living it and putting it here. But there's something that happened in this whole situation for me. And that was that I got so close to death that somehow that knowledge just was pushed through the system between the brain and right down in my heart. And I have to tell you today, I simply do not have the same relationship to worry and anxiety. Now, do I worry? Absolutely. Does anxiety come upon me? Yes. I don't have any control over it. It just happens. But what changes is the way I relate to it. It's in perspective now. And let me just tell you this. I used to truly care, truly care more about what other people thought of me than what I thought of myself. I used to really get troubled by people who come to church and they are, are, are upset and angry or they have their own stuff going on. I took it really 
personally. I used to struggle whenever I wasn't liked by 100% of the people, 100% of the time. That's just me, and that may be you sometimes. I used to only get my self-worth by what I think other people approved in me or didn't approve, but not any longer. Because I know that no matter what people think or even how I feel, I know this thing that, that's true. As the spirit of life is inside of me telling me, you are good. You are held by God. You are worthy to God. Now, I'm not deserving of grace, but God for some reason said I was worth it. You're not deserving either, but do you know that God says you're worth it? You were worth it to God. Do you know that you were worth it to God to go to the, to the ends of the earth for? You were worth it to God. Why aren't you crying? Why aren't you excited? You were worth it to God. The Holy Spirit wants to come inside of you and let you know that too so you can rest, so that you can be at peace when you're called to love because love is risky. The Holy Spirit wants to give you the life so you can be free to give it away, so you can be free to be joyous because I guarantee you even the most rich of us get so frustrated at the way the world works because it doesn't work the way we want it to work. It never will work the way we want it to work. And so we get frustrated. We get angry sometimes and things change and it hurts our feelings. But guess what? The Spirit of God can come in you and give you freedom, a freedom of joy. Do you know to be joyous, you have to be free. You cannot be free and in shackles, and you, you cannot be joy and shackled on the inside of our hearts. You have to be free. You can be free in your heart and in physical shackles and have joy. My friends, that's what being baptized in the baptism of Jesus means as the Spirit comes alongside of you and gives you life. So as we celebrate Epiphany Sunday and the aha of God, I hope and pray that you don't have to go to the edge of your own life to have these aha moments. But if you take your baptism seriously into Christ, because I think if you're here, many of you have been baptized into Christ. If you take it seriously, you will note that in the waters, you said no to yourself. You said no to ego. And you said, I'm going to die to myself and become alive in God. And the thing about it is, when you were baptized, it wasn't the end of your story. I was 13 when I was baptized. I didn't have it figured out. I'm 42. I don't have it all figured out. But I am called to live into that baptism of Jesus, which means I'm called to remember it, to remember my commitment to dying to self and to my reception of aliveness from God and God's Spirit. And the thing is, is if you live that day in and day out, it can teach you. It can teach you to be free, to love without limit, to serve without fear, and to go forward into unknown territory and make a difference for God.